All right, everybody, welcome to a very special Robin Sue show. It is episode number 300. A lot of people thought we wouldn't get to three. We've made it to 300. Uh, and and I can't even count that high. So it's really. Well, we know that that New Jersey school system is rough. <laughs> um, I, to celebrate, I wanted to bring on one of my favorite guests, uh, my cousine, uh, a guy who's who's just he's phenomenal on YouTube. He's phenomenal on podcasts. Uh, one of the best uh, crime writers, uh, crime reporters in the country, in the world, in the universe. My great friend Scott Bernstein of the OG podcast, available on YouTube, re recommend on YouTube, also on uh, podcasts wherever you listen. Scott, how are you, brother? Stu, thanks for having me, man. Always, always good to have you, brother. Um, I wanted to bring you on and do something a little different. Me and Rob were talking about it. We, we'll talk some sports. We got Indiana basketball lined up. Jim Harbaugh, war criminal. Is he in the Hague? We're not sure. Um, we're going to definitely talk that at the end. But Rob, Rob and me, we aside from just getting after each other about sports, we, we have a lot of varied interests, mafia history, uh, which is phenomenal. You and uh, our boy Nadu, uh, with great shows that we watch. But also, you know, Rob Rob's pretty close to closing in on wrapping up this JFK thing, isn't that right, Rob? I'm right there. I mean, I'm right there. I'm 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 almost at the finish. It's just forget about it. I'm I'm right there. I just and, need a little bit, little bit to get over the edge. You know. And I, I mean? did send uh, Scott. I did send Rob. Uh, something you did without profit a few weeks ago on the OG podcast, but I figured I, I'd give you a little bit more time to just kind of flesh this out. The mafia and the JFK thing we've seen. Yeah, this movies. is, this is, this is, and this is near and dear to my heart because I work in North Jersey. I've, you know, Staten Island, I'm in all the time. Like the mafia is such a big thing. Always the storylines over here. And, like Stu said, I mean, he's he's not even giving it justice. Uh, Scott's podcast is phenomenal, and uh, he just does a great job, man. Wh whatever he's on, he's an historian. He's uh, he's great with this kind of stuff. So, thanks, man. You humble me. I'm honored. Uh, Scott, let's let's go back to the JFK mafia thing. Where where do the ties start, and how how real is this thing? Is it a, a strong possibility? Realistic, I mean, I there's a long I, shot. I, I don't think it's even debatable, honestly. If you know the situation, you know the facts, you know the players. Um, I just, there's no way this was a one man job. This was the mafia. This was the CIA. Um, this, this was a, as sad as it is to say, and as heart wrenching as it is to fathom, uh, this was an inside job. Uh, the inner workings of the intelligence community, uh, having already joined forces with the mafia, you know, after World War II or during World War II. Um, this was, you know, them joining forces again to take out an American president in the same way that they got an American president elected. Now, in your opinion, how quick do you think, you know, you read on it, you listen to shows like yours and everything. 
How quick do you think it started to turn from when he got elected that the mafia started to get turned off? It was right away. It was a couple yeah. of months into the it, term or it was. Well, let me answer uh, two questions with kind of one mm -hmm. uh, anecdote. Uh, I'll answer the question that Rob just asked and I'll answer the question that I think Stu posed uh, a couple minutes ago about where did the links between the Kennedy family and the mafia begin. So I would say that the entire narrative, uh, the kind of glorious dark union that existed between the Kennedy and the mafia, and then the brutal destruction of that union that ended in my opinion, Kennedy's assassination, possibly Hoffa's assassination, um, CMG and Connor's assassination. I think there was ties between all of them, even if the 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 core motive wasn't that. But with Kennedy, to me, it clearly was. And so the 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 connections between the Kennedy clan and the underworld go back to prohibition with Joe Kennedy, the patriarch. Um, made a lot of money in, in bootlegging, uh, made a lot of very valuable relationships with CD characters, um, called in a lot of those favors. Uh, when he saw his, his sons as a, a kind of the next generation of the Kennedy political machine that would then, in their mind, take the White House and and have a, you know, Washington dynasty. Um, and, you know, you talk to all the historians and all the researchers and they're lying if, if they tell you that the mafia didn't help John F. Kennedy get into the White House, um, specifically with uh, voting manipulation in Illinois and West Virginia. Um, in a very, very close 1964 presidential race between, uh, or sorry, 1960 presidential race between Kennedy and Nixon. And then within a, it might, I got to double check it. It might've been within months, definitely within a year of John Kennedy being elected and taking office in the white house joe kennedy had a stroke um which disabled him and uh, kind of ravished him of mind and body uh or at least body and that's when it all fell apart and there was mm -hmm. nobody to protect uh john at that point his dad was in a wheelchair and and couldn't eat without the help or couldn't eat couldn't shit with the with, without the help of a, a nurse um and and the the horse was already out of the barn at that point he had already taken his brother and uh started using his brother as a you know a, a, a strong arm proxy you know trying to go after the same guys that his dad uh got to back him and help get him into the, into the white house even the sinatra thing i mean you gotta you gotta remember what the 
pop culture, what the media was like in 1960, and television was when it was in its infancy, and Frank Sinatra was a. I mean, people talk about Taylor Swift now having such influence, but Frank Sinatra was 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 more influential than any male entertainer is today in 1960, and he wasn't just backing or endorsing Kennedy. He was, him and the Rat Pack were, were on the political campaign. And that was because of the, the mafia links. So now he's another guy too, right? Like right after he got elected, they kind of pushed him away. They cut right? him they out. Yeah. They cut, yeah, him, they out. cut him right out. They yeah. use, they use, they used him the same way they used the mob. And it was a lot easier, frankly, to cut out Frank Sinatra. What's he going to do? Yeah, he was yeah. a singer and an actor, yeah. but you cut out guys like Sam Giancana, guys like Santo Traficante, Carlos Marceau. It's a whole different ball game, man. You're you're playing with fire. Now you, brought you go up Marcello, you, you go against Italians like that. Forget about it. They're, they're never going to forget it. You brought up Marcelo and Traficante and and Giancana. It, those are multiple different families or factions, right? Like so. Is this a situation like we know with with your coverage on Hoffa, like it, it was probably a lot tighter of a situation and and a lot more under wraps for. Well, they were all working involved. with the, they were all working with the CIA before the Kennedy thing to try to get Castro uh, out of Cuba. So that 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 uh, nexus point between the CIA and the mafia, which had existed, like I said, back during the World War II era with Lucky Luciano and all that stuff, was was really reconstructed in the early 1960s um, with okay. the CIA, Traficante, Marcello, Giancana, Hoffa, all having the same interest in getting, uh, getting Fidel Castro uh, overthrown in Cuba. So they were already doing business together when I believe they decided to knock off Kennedy because a the mafia felt incredibly disrespected and taken advantage of. Uh, they thought they were buying a presidency and in reality they were uh, buying an adversary. They were financing their own of uh, future adversary. Um, oh, they probably thought once he was in there, they were going to be able to do whatever right. they wanted to do, right? Right, and the next thing you know, his brother is is going after all of them yeah. and trying to and holding you know public hearings on national television and putting all their business on blast. Um, guys, that again, you people didn't know this at the time and didn't know until you know years later, but these are the people that he jumped into the White House on their off, off their shoulders. Um, and they shared a lot of women. How about that? If you want to just, you want to get even like, uh, more to the just basic human nature aspect of it. Um, there was a lot of, there were a lot of women that, uh, mafia paramours that more than the ones you just know about the Marilyn Monroe's and the Judith Campbell's. And there were another dozen or so, if not more of, uh, you know, gangster moles that, ended up in in the uh being kennedy side pieces that is amazing even when they showed uh one of the kennedy do kennedy documentaries i was watching uh 
um, like they would have women even at their summer houses when they had their families there. They would yeah. just have them in other rooms. Like that was just racist wild. womanizers, starting with the dad. Um, a lot of people don't know that, you know, at least Jack and Bob, they they shared women. Marilyn Monroe was, you know, shared by both of them. Um, and then eventually Jackie O. A lot of people don't know that after John was assassinated, she she had a romance with, with Bobby when Bob, Bobby was cheating on um, Ethel. Um, and, and they were in a relationship for a couple years in the mid-60s. That's a, that's a different that kind of... That is insane. Now, I, I got to ask you something. It, it, this would be, you know, this is your opinion. But with all the research you do and all your knowledge, if his father doesn't have the stroke, do you think he would have stepped in and said, well, you better back off? You know, he would have told them, you better back yeah. off. We better not make enemies. Things would have maybe been a little bit smoother. I think things would have been totally different mm -hmm. if old man Kennedy was a, a functioning, um, you know, he, the guy had been a force of nature his whole life uh, and, and was completely incapacitated by this massive stroke that didn't kill him, but uh made him basically a vegetable kind of um mm -hmm. and i know there's a lot of pictures of of kennedy in the white house kind of with his dad but his dad's like out to lunch and just like you know a year before that or two years before that he's wheeling and dealing um behind the scenes and 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 throwing his power around i think if joe kennedy is alive uh through that first three or it was really only two and a half through those first two and a, the only two and a half years of the Kennedy administration. Yeah. I don't think a lot of things that happened would have happened. I don't think Bobby Kennedy would have gone after them the way that he did. Uh, he had started going after them before that, you know, even in the, you know, during the McCarthy era. Uh, but th that would have tamped down and, and his dad would have, in my opinion, without question would have buffered and, and, made deals to protect his son and, and get his son to be less combative with these people that they needed to have in their corner. Yeah. It's amazing how the father almost had more street credit than both of them. You know, it was like he had the dad that was a gangster. The dad was a gangster. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. His own right. Yeah. He was a businessman that was also a gangster. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. That's who, that's who Joe, uh, Joe Kennedy senior was. Um, I also find it interesting as a, his, you know, the Kennedys are really my first, uh, as someone who, who loves history and loves crime, uh, it was really what, what started me on this stuff. The Kennedy assassination as a child was always something that interested me. And I remember even in like maybe elementary school, going to the library and reading about the Kennedy assassination. And uh, I didn't really get interested in the mob stuff until I was in my twenties. So I, I have so much uh, affinity for the subject matter, but I, I in a non-mafia-related issue, I find it kind of fascinating that the Kennedy that everybody thought was going to be president and they thought was going to be the face of the Kennedy dynasty uh, going forward was Joe, uh, Joe Jr., who was, if you look at, kind of the tail of the tape, and this is all due respect to Bobby and Teddy and Jack, Joe, Joe Jr. on paper was better looking, smarter, better, more, a better athlete, 
a better womanizer. Uh, he he was like a, a, a like someone that they engineered in a lab. Yeah. Um, and happened to die uh, at war in a in a in a cautionary tale of hubris. Um, if uh, the story, at least that I've heard and read about, was Jack uh, was a war hero in the South Pacific. And uh, Joe was having his, I believe, his 50th birthday party. And uh, everybody who was anybody was there. And Jack had always been this kind of sickly, I don't want to say black sheep, but he wasn't anyone that was looked at as like the way Joe Joe Jr. was. And the dad was so proud of Jack for being the war hero. Uh, did a big toast to him in front of everybody at his 50th birthday party. And this really upset Joe Jr. He felt upstaged and embarrassed. He was the older brother. He should be the war hero. And something like the, and this was like a party on a Saturday night, something like the, on Monday morning, uh, Joe like signed up for this really very, very dangerous top secret mission that if he, in his mind, if he completed, he would have, he would one up Jack. And he died in that uh, in that mission. That's insane. Yeah, that's. Hey, Scott, for yeah. so you talked about the CIA being the nexus point. How how much did New York and like the commission at this point? How much are is this a national type thing where, uh, you know, key leaders across the country, you think, have eyes on this or is a very select few people? I think the commission uh, had oversight, but the Chicago people were running point. So it was a Cardo and Giancana and uh, those people that were, were directly dealing with the asset, meaning either Kennedy or Hoffa. <laughs> well, in, in Hoffa, the, the asset was being controlled by Detroit and Chicago, but uh, in terms of Kennedy, it was going through Chicago. Um, but I don't believe that the the bosses in New York, who Accardo and Giancana sat on that commission with, uh, so yeah, I do believe they had eyes on it, but they weren't directly pulling any of the strings. That was being done by Chicago, Florida, New Orleans, Dallas, um, and 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 New York was was chiming in when when necessary quick aside here since i am getting sucked into boardwalk empire again i i mean it certainly portrays chicago and new york as uh like in a certain tepid kind of relationship how, how would you characterize at this point in time um chicago and new york like is it is the relationship just hey good today? Luck? today well just over time like it today for sure but also during the the jfk time is it like hey good job guys good luck on what you do or no no they were all they were all very um co-conspirator co-conspirators okay yeah it was very uh organized that that was when the commission was fully intact and was was running the day-to-day american black market you know from coast to coast you can't say that now about the mafia, but back then you can. Today, in terms of Chicago and New York, there's still a relationship. I know that there are at least 
least two, maybe three of the five families I know to have direct joint rackets going on. Um, I know that Lucchese, uh, I believe he's conciliary now, but he had been underboss. Patty Red, Della Russo, uh, is a guy that does some stuff with the Cicero crew in Chicago, allegedly. Um, and I know that, uh, and, and Patty Red's Lucchese, uh, and I know that there's also some, I've heard, uh, there's there's some uh, Genovese family stuff uh, out of New Jersey that uh, is in coordination with Chicago. And I know that there was a, a business relationship at some point, possibly still, uh, between Elmwood Park and Chicago uh, that crew and the Gambinos and there was an issue uh, related to a, a video poker machines and I know that uh, Rudy Fratto who was you know his lineage in the in the mob goes back to Capone uh, he's about 80 years old now 79 maybe 78 uh, and he's a uh, officially I think he's conciliary He's more of like a faction boss. He runs the old Elmwood Park DeFranzo crew. It's kind of his own little family within a family uh, in Chicago. He's kind of like a boss without being a boss. Like he's more powerful than a capo and more powerful than a conciliary, but not, not the top guy. Anyway, I heard that he had to go to Chicago and there was a sit down. This was like four or five years ago um, for that. So yes, there's still from, so that's three families that I've heard have, either active rackets right now or rackets with Chicago over the last less than the last decade. So it's historically just a, it, it's been a good relationship dating back yeah. to. Okay. That's interesting. It, it is amazing. You know, like when you listen to your podcasts and uh, Jeff's podcast and, you know, anything on the mafia, it is amazing how in today's world, like, you know, everything years ago, like was huge with, with sports betting and the racket with that. And like how now that's become legal. Or, you know, it, everything that was looked down upon years ago, like almost everything now has become legal. Like it's, you know, everybody's talking about betting lines. Everybody's betting these games. It's it's just incredible. I don't know. To but, me, but, the way that I, world has went. Let's be clear, though, and let's not lose the forest through the trees because I might be one of the only people in the world kind of sitting here waving my hand or or wanting to chime in and and shed some insight that I think is really getting lost in this narrative that you're put we're pointing out and I'm not saying it's not true but there mm -hmm. are layers to it and although if you woke up a lot of these you know historic legendary mob guys if you woke up Carlo Gambino from the grave mm -hmm. and you and you said to him hey Don Carlo 40 you know, 40, 50 years after you died, gambling is legal. Marijuana <laughs> is legal. The government yeah. is profiting from it. You know, his head would explode. <laughs> but there's another side of that that I think isn't being pointed out that needs to be is that, you know, the underworld, the mafia, particularly, they evolve and they evolve with the times. And just because those markets have turned uh, legal it doesn't mean that it's eliminated the black market. 
And in fact, I would say the black market still exists and in some ways was benefited from this, both in uh, black market sale of marijuana, mm -hmm. uh, certain pills that are, are, you know, borderline legal, illegal. I would imagine whatever. loan sharking has seen yeah, very and, positive. And, uh, and sports and sports gambling. Um, it'll be interesting to see how in 20 years what it's like, but there are still guys right now that are in their 60s and 70s that bet that don't want to bet on a phone. They oh, want to yeah. have a bookie that they exchange money with every Tuesday. Mm -hmm. Um, and then there's a lot of online virtual sports book that look completely legitimate if you're just looking at it at first glance. Uh, that aren't you know MGM or draft. Uh, I've seen them. Draft I, I've seen and them. They're, they're, they're mob. You're, you're yeah, betting they're sharp, the mob. You're just betting online. They do, they they do good job with presentation. The ones that yeah. I've seen, it's good. So, I think it's dangerous to be like, oh well, because these two things have gone legal in the last decade, mm -hmm. uh, and can and it seems like both of those markets, the legal markets, are just going to keep on growing there's so much growth you know literally and figuratively with weed and with uh and with gambling there's just it's just so it's being so it, it, there, there used to be such a they try to make this you know this firewall between sports and gambling and now it's like that firewall has been completely you know brought down and and shattered yeah, yeah. and now there's nothing but trying to find ways for them both to make money off of each other so there's no doubt that that's going to keep growing and it will be interesting to see how with the people that are let's say under 50 or even under 40 right now that like to bet how how or or when the black market will be affected by it yeah right that, now, that's you hear that a lot and you know i've been i've i've i grew up around racehorses so i grew up and, you know, I grew up as a kid around gambling all the time. You knew bookies, you knew where to bet, especially being around the track. I mean, the characters you meet at a racetrack, forget about it. But it is amazing. And you do make a good point that even people today, I still know people that you're better, you're betters that don't want to front the money to DraftKings. You know, DraftKings, I think, tends more to the people like me, how I play a little bit, where I know from gambling, you're not going to get rich. But you know, your parlay players and you, you know, you like to play points in a game, the prop, points the prop and a half bets. or this and that. Yeah. I, I think where your mom and pop places still make money is the betters that they just want it straight up. Like you said, they want to pay on a Tuesday and everything like that. They're not worried about how many points somebody has in the second quarter or anything like that. Just a flat rate on the game and they pay once a week, you know, but you do see a lot of people say that, that they think now with this legal gambling, people under the age of fifty in ten or fifteen years are all going to have bad gambling habits. But yeah, well, that's true too. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's true, with yeah. with the black market weed, at least in Michigan, I can speak to. It's open season for shakedowns. I mean, <laughs> I, I I see it. It's it, this has been the greatest thing for the black market extortion community here. Uh, mm -hmm. and, it, and it doesn't discriminate between the African-American underworld here in Detroit, the Middle Eastern underworld, the Arab underworld and the Italian underworld. Um, they all look to cut into people within their own kind of spaces 
uh, that have legal grows, um, they come shake them down. And you can read uh, about it at gangsterreport.com. Yeah, thank you. That's my web magazine that kind of com complements my OG pod. But, uh, you know, they come in and, uh, you know, if I don't, I should know this. I don't know what the exact number uh, for not even the big companies. I mean, I don't think the big companies, the corporations aren't getting shook down. But yeah. the, the, like, well, what, they're getting shook Rob down by said, the taxes, mom and pop. What do you say? I heard uh, like some of the fees and taxes and the actual uh, licenses. I heard yeah. that's a racket, but that's right. Like that's the a racket in racket. itself. But they go after the mom and pop spots that uh, that have like have have medical licenses or whatever, and they're allowed a certain amount of legal grows. Mm -hmm. And you know the the Arab mob or the Italian mob will go find somebody that's. Iraqi or Syrian, if they're a Calde you know, an Arab mobster, a Chaldean mobster, if they're Italian, they'll go find an Italian that has that type of mom and pop grow. And they'll be like, oh, Yo, you know, those, you know, I'm just throwing the number out. You know, those, you know, 50 plants that you're allowed by the state to grow. Well, guess what? We own 20 of them now. <laughs> yeah, it's it's amazing. It's amazing. And it, it just it keeps going. I mean, here in New Jersey, it's there is more marijuana shops now than there is Walmarts. I mean, they yep. are just, they're everywhere. They're all over the place. And then the guys that can't own them end up owning them anyway. There's just six buffers in between them. And they get <laughs> fronts to get yep. the licenses. And yeah, every gangster I know in Detroit is invested in grows, legal grows. Um, obviously, they don't have licenses. <laughs> hey, Scott, I, want, I wanted to balanced. put a... I want to put a bow on the JFK thing before we yeah. move on because we got Montreal we want to talk about. Yeah. I know uh, Big Meech uh, with tons of stuff. I don't know if you've ever answered this question, but did the JFK involvement by the mafia is, can you peel back the onion and go, this is where everything fell apart? For the mafia do you do you think because it's right after this it feels like things start going down a very yeah it's it definitely was a factor i don't think it was the primary factor i i think everything changed i would say well the the first nail in the proverbial coffin was when robert blakey the notre dame uh legendary you know professor uh penned the rico law with uh with legislatures in washington and and uh put it into uh, action i believe it was in 71 or 72 nobody knew how to use it for a good 10 15 years but it, it the blueprint was right there and then when people when the when the prosecutors really were able to wrap their head around how they could use this as a a, a weapon to, to just decapitate organization after organization. Um, and that started with the commission case that came down in 84. Um, that was the commission case in 84. And then the cases that spawned out of Casino, uh, the movie Casino, um, that were the 82 straw man and 85 straw man too. So I would say those three prosecutions um straw man one in 82 straw man two in 85 and then the new york commission case that came down in 84 
uh, those were the, the the three main factors in in the decline of the American mafia and, and power and influence and you know the the end of that golden era and the start of this new era where they exist and and they thrive in some some ways still but they're not nearly they're they're a shadow of themselves overall in terms of power and influence it's kind of amazing we have you on this week and this is like the start of super bowl week in las vegas this and is I gotta my tell super you, bowl yeah when, when yeah. i was in las vegas one of the coolest things i went to was the mob museum i thought that was awesome i heard it's incredible it really yeah, I'm on is the board. i'm on the board i'm on the board there the shameless self-promotion oh. I'm That's awesome. Of, uh, that that makes sense. the mob museum. So I recommend everybody go there. Oh, Mike, awesome, Lombardi, Mike Lombardi was mentioning that on uh, the GM shuffle. He was like, "Oh, I I, I spent a whole day at the mob museum. I, I'm it's going back second, a second day." I think it's the se- it's the second biggest tourist attraction in Vegas behind the Hoover Dam right now. It, it's amazing. Listening to my favorite part for me. Because of the horse racing, I love listening to. They had the old phones and the way they used to call in the, the wire. Oh, yeah. that's yeah. Amazing. They have the race call on there. I my my wife was ready to kill me. I, I we spent about four hours there. I could have spent about ten. I just I, I couldn't get enough of that place when I went. I, I it is funny that you know the mob basically builds Las Vegas everything, and then like you see today the NFL. And now it's, it's cor- now it's even, totally corporate. Yeah. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's a. They said the boxes at, at the game are going for two point five million dollars this week. I mean, just think about the money in Las Vegas, the gambling, everything, and it started I'm, with the mafia. I'll throw out a tease. I, I don't want to get. I'm not going to get too into it because I wouldn't feel comfortable mm-hmm. talking about it. But I'll just kind of uh, play around the periphery of this. But I'll just tell you and your viewers. I think the mafia in 2024 there's still a part of las vegas that is controlled by organized crime um and organized crime had disappeared for the most part uh from las vegas for maybe a good two decades and at some point in the last decade uh i know there is some very powerful sectors of the gaming industry right now. Um, I'll say a lot of it is more downtown than the strip. Uh, Are um, at the very least mob affiliated. And there are questions I know in some circles of law enforcement in Las Vegas, some circles of the media in Las Vegas and some circles of, of, of gaming control in Las Vegas that wonder where some of this money from some of these people uh, that are doing a lot of expansion in the, in the gaming industry out there uh, where their money's coming from. So I'll just leave it at that. I, I don't know where this will go. If there'll ever be some big bust in the coming years that shows that Vegas still had a hook or that the mob still had a hook into Vegas. But I know there are some questions being asked about some kind of new movers and shakers uh, that kind of came into the scene in that city, let's say in the late 2000s. In about two to five years, uh, I'll ask you a follow-up question. Yeah. Uh, 
And off, do... off air, off air, I can tell you. Yeah, okay, well, well, then we'll, we'll do that off air. Sorry, sorry for the listeners. Uh, find yeah. your own friend that's a, a reporter. <laughs> um, I, I wanted to ask you, me and Rob got hooked into it, and we were watching uh, a show you helped um, with some of the background for, some of the color for, uh, BMF on Stars. Yeah, uh, Roberto, he was, like we were calling each other and we watched the shows and it's like, man, did this, did this shit really happen? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is a real yeah, BMF's story. crazy story. Yeah. yeah um, and there's a lot of it that's going on in real time right now, actually. There's a lot of that story. Yeah, that's still and you're, out. you're, you're on good terms with uh, the Flannery's and, and Big yeah. Meech and everybody. Like, how is he? What what's what's going and for the listeners who don't know BMF, you know, what's the kind of synopsis that brings us to where we're at today? The Black Mafia family was the biggest urban organized crime group in American history. Uh, they existed from about 1990 to 2005. There are still some remnants of the the quote unquote Black Mafia family or BMF uh, that exist. It was a group that started in Detroit. Uh, and then quickly expanded, uh, and by the by the Operation Motor City Mafia bus that came down in October of 2005, it was the biggest uh, DEA domestic drug case in in history, meaning non-cartel um, or you know uh, European or Corsican, you know the fact rooted in America, um, and they had like something like 20. They had uh, franchises in like 21 states. They had, they basically became the, I call it the Walgreens of cocaine. Um, by 95 to about 05, every, almost every street corner in every major city um, was selling BMF coke, cocaine, uh, wholesale cocaine. And um, they patterned themselves after the Italian mafia. They were structured like the Italian mafia. And the Flannery brothers admittedly studied Lucky Luciano and Meyer Lansky and Nicky Barnes and uh, Supreme McGriff and YBI here in Detroit and the Jackalonies here in Detroit. Uh, they they kind of took all this, you know, gangland history that they learned about and kind of took the best from all of it and patched it together to be this it was a phenomenon. It was a movement. Um, it was the only kind of people talk about the Rat Pack and the Mafia back in the day. The only equivalent of that in modern times is with BMF and the way that they are immersed into all the major urban pop culture, every major actor, musician, rapper uh, has associations and and loves these guys and um, their celebrities. Yeah, Rick Ross, that's Rick Ross. That's the first time yeah. I ever heard his song. Him mention yeah. that, and then when I first yeah. started, I got to tell you that show is. I'm not blowing smoke up your ass. I mean that show is incredible. Like the first time I watched it, I caught Stu, and I'm like, "Is is this for like this show is this show is awesome?" Like I, I didn't realize you know half of that stuff went on. A really great show. They they and and really. I don't want to, I don't want to excuse it, uh, or or paint these guys out to be something they weren't. So I, I preface it with that. But what they were able to accomplish with 
I, I will use the term limited, limited violence um, is a miracle in itself. They went around the country and absorbed street corners that for decades before that, uh, hundreds of bodies had been dropped fighting over that street corner. And Demetrius Flannery was such a uh, underworld politician or diplomat. He was able to go into all these cities that weren't his and convince these really hardcore drug kingpins to join BMF. And all of the violence was kind of like guys within their own crew, either beefing with each other or, um, dare I say, stupid nightclub machismo, uh, you know, guys bumping into each other and, you know, uh, spilling a, a glass on somebody or, uh, pulling out their car too close to somebody. That's how a lot of the violence that was occurring, um, that there wasn't a lot of violence in the 15 years. There were some murders, yes. Again, I'm not trying to make it out to be that this was a non-violent mm -hmm. group. But for what they did and to have as as such a small amount of homicides connected to them is is again that's it's a it's a huge unicorn outlier of a situation and at that time correct me if i'm wrong like there's really no social media isn't that big in the mid 90s no. early oh my 2000s. god they would have gone nuts they i couldn't imagine what they would have been like if they had social media yeah the, like internet, amazing, the internet was had, brand new it's amazing he had that kind of respect going into those kind of neighborhoods i guess by word of mouth or they seen the money that he made or it wasn't like somebody on instagram flashing he's in you know they're in a ferrari or they're in this i guess you know was it a word of mouth type thing that you can respect they, them the money they made or they made key allies in different cities um where those guys would kind of open the door for him so they mm -hmm. had, the guys that they were meeting with already knew the people that meach and terry had hooked up with in that city for instance in st louis mm -hmm. there was the gatling boys um two brothers the gatling brothers uh who were kind of rising stars in st louis so when meeting them hook up with the gatlings the gatlings can then take them to st louis and introduce them to people and kind of get meet an audience to pitch uh same thing in new york a guy named fleming daniels who they called ill uh who was their third in charge oh and i should say in st louis jabo so jabo who was their underboss they actually use these terms because they modeled their stuff after the mob uh mm -hmm. their underboss was jabo who was a st louis guy and then the gatling brothers were under jabo and then in new york ill daniels they all called uh joe pesci or tommy d because uh his uh i guess he loved the character uh tommy d in goodfellas and i guess he emulated the character in real life uh, so ill hope. daniels like so yeah, right. <laughs> ill daniels i guess was about or is about five three five four like a tiny guy but uh, had a crazy temper and uh, kind of hair trigger like the Tommy character and and I can love the character. So it was mm -hmm. ill or they called him Tommy D or Joe Pesci. <laughs> uh, and he was their New York guy. So he opened the door to all the New York guys that Meech and them didn't know. But because ill was their guy, Meech could get an audience with these guys through ill. So every city they had guys like that. Was there ever a connection between BMF and and the Jackalones, the Detroit Mafia? Because it's like no, it it seems like it, there. 
just because was, of notoriety, they would be aware of each other or to some extent? Nah, Detroit was out of the urban drug game by that point. Um, they, uh, Flannery's were working with uh, uh, the Chaldean Mafia. Okay. Uh, so the Akrawi Kalashos were working with BMF. Um, and uh, BMF was working with the PAs, which are the Puritan Avenue uh, boys here in Detroit, which are a big West Side drug crew. Um, who had ties into Kwame Kilpatrick and the, the mayor's office. I, I um, found that under shocking. Right. So I, BMF had no crossovers really with any Italian mob, even though they idolized and emulated Italian mob. They didn't actually do business with the Italian mob, which is interesting. How's how's Meech doing uh, today? Not so good. I, I don't know. You probably haven't been following it. There's This is why a lot of this... I know. I know they keep they keep hemming him up, and uh, his brother got released. Correct. Yeah. So Terry's been out since 2020. Um, the issue, really, though, is with Demetrius. Uh, is that in the last year there's been paperwork that's been made public that shows Demetrius was, I would call it, uh, shadow cooperating, uh, using a proxy uh, to cooperate kind of on his behalf so he could benefit from it. Uh, it's a really, it, it's sent For ripple where he's effects. at, that's probably not a great thing to come out. It's really affected his, um, his legacy, his reputation. I believe he's in some form of protective custody right now in federal prison. Things turned on, went from, things did a 180 with him in the last year. He went from a god, and now there's a lot of polarization and animosity uh, amongst BMF towards their one-time godlike leader. Uh, and the reason is because the cooperation wasn't against non-BMF. It looks like uh, the cooperation was against the St. Louis wing of this uh of the organization and this was a a guy that was like a brother uh to um to to demetrius he was one of the gatling brothers who i mentioned earlier in st louis um and it looks like D demetrius set him up from prison um on drug deals with a uh a, a Hispanic wholesaler from LA that Demetrius met in lockup in the in Wayne County in Wayne County, Michigan at the Wayne County uh, jail while they were both under indictment in 2005. Demetrius hooked up with this guy and uh, looks like Demetrius was still moving drugs from prison uh, based on on these court filings. Uh, from 2005 into the 2010s, uh, was using this his, Hispanic uh, uh, Latino LA resident that owned a, a, a trucking company. And the trucking company was shipping cocaine from the West Coast uh, to St. Louis, to Detroit, to Chicago. And uh, Puffy Gatling, who was the the person who was 
allegedly cooperated against, uh, has been very vocal that Meech set him up. A lot of people didn't believe him. And then this paperwork kind of all flooded out last spring, early last spring. Um, I, I just want to report the facts. I like Demetrius. I got nothing but respect for Demetrius. But if you read through the paperwork, it's pretty clear. Uh, he was trying to play both sides of the fence. He didn't want his name obviously coming out in any cooperation documents. He was using his BMF CEO. Her name is Tammy Cowens. She's literally the CEO of BMF Entertainment, and she's a producer on the show. Um, and she was outed as a DA informant. And it looks like in her case, if you read through her case files, she was communicating with Meech on a regular basis and doing three-way phone calls with DEA agents, putting DEA agents in, in contact with Cuffy Gatling's people in St. Louis. Um, it, it, it looks really bad. Mm. Um, we want to definitely get to some sports talk on yeah. the other side of the break. Let's do a quick uh rapid fire roberto i'm gonna go first here uh scott so we found out bombshell news uh jimmy hoffa's under the third baseline at old <laughs> milwaukee brewer stadium true or false yes that's false yeah <laughs> that's uh, that's uh god bless uh i think his name is tom colbert or colbert uh i got a lot of respect for him as a as a, a investigator a reporter I think his heart's in the right place here. But it's kind of hard to just jump into something that's been going on for 50 years uh, and you get like a something that might look to you as a, as a valid tip. And then in a year, I, I'm not saying that Tom is saying this, but it, it might be perceived. And I'm not, I don't know anything about the case. And then within a couple of years, I'm... I've solved it and I'm an expert and I know everything. Uh, so I, there's a lot of, um, I guess, assumptions or presumptions in this theory. Doesn't make a lot of sense. There's not a lot of context. They're claiming that the body was moved. Like they're, they're saying that the body that got put into Milwaukee County stadium arrived there in September of 95. They're not telling us where, the body was between August or July 30th, uh, 75 and September 95. It, it's yeah, it's, it's, a you know, it comes up here every now and again, a couple of years ago. Yeah, I know. In North Jersey, they're starting to redo yeah. these older bridges, you know, they're starting to fall apart. So the big thing was it was going, it's still going on. They're, they're, they're he's under the Pulaski Skyway. Pulaski yeah, Skyway. Right. That was the big thing. He's underneath one of the columns right. on the Pulaski yeah. Skyway. It's, it's, it's amazing yeah. the way that comes. They dug, they dug there though. They dug there. They didn't find anything. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, I didn't even know. Okay. Okay. Yeah, they're not going to dig. They ain't going to dig. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it's another thing where they, they try to use, Oh well, we had some, you know, uh, what what's the term where uh, the, where you check for things underneath the surface? Oh, the ground ground uh, the GPR ground radar. G, G, yeah, GPR. Yeah. Oh, GPR, we had some yeah. GPR hits. It's yeah. like okay, 
I'm not saying that <laughs> there might not be a body under there. You'll find something yeah. under the You'll collection. Find, yeah, bridge. it ain't, oh, it yeah. ain't there. There yeah. might be a body there, though. Yeah, I, I've seen them pull out cars in Jersey City yeah. when they're digging but, things up. I mean, so forget about it. Montreal. It, it's a war. I, I don't think people are tracking this. but It's insanity. It, it's biblical. How long has that war been going on? So the war itself has been going on for 15 years, but now we have a there's a million wars within that war, but now we have the biggest war within that war that's erupted over the last two years, which is the Montreal Mafia, the Rizzuto mob, um, and the Hells Angels, who for 30 plus years were allies and worked together very closely and watched each other's backs. Um, that all fell apart in the last couple years and now they're trying to kill each other and you have this kind of mafia inspired biker boss named marty robert who they call marty the capo um and marty has a vision of the hell's angels absorbing the Rizzuto mob like a hostile takeover um and that's his plan uh, he wants the paradigm in Canada to shift where, you know, Vito Rizzuto uh, was always kind of the top of the pyramid and, you know, kept everyone else kind of in check and they all worked together. But Vito was at was at the top of it. And now, you know, Marty wants to become the top of that pyramid and and take the Rizzuto mob for himself. I, I have so many questions. First off. Are you going to do some more? Because I know you've covered Montreal, and that's where I found out, like, yeah. oh, this is actively going on. Are you do planning on more in-depth Montreal coverage for the show? Yeah, then... a ton. I got, I got something that's going to be rolling out in the next 24 hours. Um, every week I got stuff going on, uh, or I, I'm reporting on stuff. And right now I'm, I'm uh, actually, I can't talk about this. There, there, uh, There's <laughs> some stuff that, uh, that I'm doing with some, let's say, a, a pretty major news outlet, media outlet, um, related to some of this that will at some day uh, hopefully see the light of day. That's exciting. Um, last thing uh, before we head to break, me and Rob were talking about it. We, we're we really kind of enthralled by the Skinny Joey uh, Merlino show. Um, oh, you fantastic. Were talking with, it's, it's a phenomenal show. I just love yep. watching the snippets and, and – uh, it's 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 really well done. The downside of it is that he's alienated himself from his entire crime family. He doesn't care. So he knows it. He doesn't really give a shit. Is he fully yeah. retired? But, retired? He's he's done. No, he ain't retired. <laughs> That's not my you've been following my reporting. I've never said he's retired. He says he's <laughs> retired. Um he's still the ultimate, you know, final word in Philly. He, I don't think he has his finger on the day-to-day -day. that's that's georgie borghese and mikey lancelotti um but he still sees an envelope from everybody's rackets and uh is still i think has to sign off on guys that are getting made i hear i heard he's making his own guys in florida which is causing issues uh because he's kind of got his own thing going on in florida allegedly <laughs> um and uh i know it's not playing well it's not playing well in new york with the bosses in new york and it's not playing well with a lot of his own guys. Only time will tell what will happen. I heard there is, there are some rumors um, that he might be stepping away. That all of this has 
create a situation where by the end of the summer, he might um, kind of be a one-man band in the sense that, like, he's operating his own kind of borgata without really a... I guess in the, in the world of uh, bikers, it would be like a nomad chapter where they don't really have one particular location that like Joe, it would just be like the Merlino organization in various parts of the country in theory. It, it, it's amazing. I mean, you always seen the stories. He was put away for a long time, like when I was growing up, but it is amazing when you hear, you know, you see like he was a jockey at Philadelphia park. The gambling aspect to him is amazing. Like, that story with him and Eric Lindros was always huge. I remember Craig Carton worked at WIP at that time. You know, Howard Eskin got him to come on. It was like a big thing that he was in Lindros's seats. He says that he didn't know or he just got the tickets. But everybody's like, come on, you're sitting in the guy's seats. I mean, it's just that well, son of, they did son that story on his podcast. That's what really seemed to blow up the podcast when they had that yeah. story, re, you know, come back up. And his son-in-law right now or his future son-in-law, um, you know, is a third baseman with the Colorado Rockies. So, you know, mm -hmm. he's he's close to pro sports. And then one of his alleged uh, capo sons, Tony D'Angelo, was in the NHL, played for the Flyers for a period of time. I love he's Joey. I just, I enjoy the show. I, I root for I him. love Joey, man. I got, I, man, I, I, I uh, it's like rooting for the bad guy in the movies. I, I got to do my due diligence <laughs> as a reporter and I got to oh, yeah. be objective and I got to call it like it is. And I, and I do. But at the same time, you know, I, I'd love to see Joey ride out into the right off into the sunset and have the Hollywood ending. Um, he's just uh, at some point the luck's gonna run out. He's been the luckiest human being in the history of the mafia, um, and I just it just seems like how many lives can you have? He's had forget nine lives. He's had ninety five lives or one hundred and ninety five lives, and everybody wants to jam him up and i i think this is my this is my big takeaway this entire thing that we're talking about that's incredibly entertaining we all watch it we all like i said i'm rooting for the guy i admit it um while i still want to be as objective I, I, as i can reporting maybe i'm talking out of both sides of my mouth and that's well what well, well, does it but, with the wolverines so yeah. you're good but I will say this. I've said this to his people. I would say this to him if he was in front of me. And I'm going to say it to you. I'll say it to anybody. I think there is a huge exposure point with this little endeavor of his, the skinny uh, podcast. I know the Kevin Conley people are behind him, Action Park Media. Kevin Conley was in Entourage. He was E in Entourage, and I'm not trying to disparage him. I think he's been a, a, a someone who's in good faith and has done a lot for Joey and 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 all this. But he's got a colorful background too. Uh, but dude, they've been taking in money since the spring. They did a turkey drive, a holiday drive. They they raised eighty thousand dollars on a freaking GoFundMe. Bro, all that money needs to be accounted for. That Say what you want. What I saw of that holiday party, that was not an $80,000 holiday party. <laughs> that was like, let's just say it was a, a $10,000 holiday party. That's 
$70,000 that I hope, I really do, I really hope that that was all perfectly legally accounted for and the government has all the receipts and everything. But for things like that with the Patreon now where he's, people are signing, dude, you, you just, you don't want to give the government any openings. And this is, in theory, a way to show the government that you're legit now. I hope what I'm worried of isn't happening and that there isn't any shadiness going on behind the scenes. Um, and I'm not saying it would even be coming from Joey. But I just don't know how buttoned up these people are that, that he's got running his business. And uh, frankly, I, I think that we could be seeing, at the very least, tax issues um, related to some of this money they're taking. Again, just my analysis. I love it, Scott. I love the analysis. OG podcast, more mafia talk there. Um, Scott's doing the Lord's work. We're going to take a quick break mm -hmm. on the flip. We're, we're going to talk IU basketball. Um, it, it's a toxic wasteland. And uh, we're going to talk another war criminal uh, in the Kremlin, Jim Harbaugh, right mm -hmm. after this quick break. Hello, everyone. This is Chris Van Dyne from North Coast Sports. You'll hear me here every week during football season with my main man, Stu, from the StuCast. And just want to let everyone know we got a lot going on at North Coast. We got Power Sweep coming up. Going to be releasing that at the end of August. And get on board for Power Sweep at ncsports.com. Definitely check out our podcast on ncsports.com. And like I said, you'll hear me every week giving out some of the best handicapping picks that you will get in the industry uh, with Stu and Bobcat every week here, as well as at North Coast Sports, ncsports.com. And we're looking forward to football season. All right, we're back with the great Scott Bernstein OG podcast, uh, wherever you get your podcasts, also on the YouTubes. We got to talk some sports. We we solved JFK. Uh, mm -hmm. we, we found where Hoffa was in the first part on the podcast, but here on YouTube, on the Pulse Sports Network, and uh, the second half of this podcast, we got to talk some sports. Let's talk about your your maybe your favorite team second favorite team i mean Third it's the team? it's the lions and the hoosiers those are the teams that really ha have always had my heart God or at least the hoosiers mean... got my heart when i was 18 and I, and I decided to go to college there um i grew up a huge michigan basketball fan and indiana would always beat them and Indiana would always go to the Final Four, and Indiana would always win national championships. So when I became an Indiana fan, I thought that's what I was signing up for. And uh, it's been uh, almost oh. thirty years. It's been almost thirty years of uh, limited tournament success. Uh, one Final Four, uh, which was glorious. Uh, Two thousand. Uh, uh, 2002 shout out to Dane Fife, the captain, my boy, yep. uh, and Tommy Coverdale, my all time favorite point guard, not named Isaiah Thomas. Such um, a shooter, Coverdale was such a. I thought he was so giddy. He was so he was so gritty, man. He was so gritty. Yes. Uh, 
But uh, outside of that, I think we've had maybe three Sweet 16s, maybe four, but I only think three in 30 years. I mean, that's it's depressing, man. That's really depressing. For a hey, team listen, that don't look for sympathy. Don't look for sympathy on this show. I'm a Rutgers fan, so I don't want to. <laughs> I'm not giving you. But Rutgers didn't have any history. <laughs> oh, how dare oh, this you! Is a the Final Four, 1976. 76. <laughs> uh, so it's just um, there have been obviously some times over the. Uh, in the 2000s that have looked bright and promising in the in the post Bobby Knight era but none of it has come to really fruition it's so few and the, the good times are so few and far between i've never i've ne you know this too i have never ever endorsed this mike woodson regime yeah i will say i will say not a fan i i, I hated the hire Mike Woodson is who he is. He was a average NBA player who was a average NBA coach who was a average college coach. Um, and I just, I cannot fathom how it's taken so many people to try to crack this code and get this state. Forget about the country. We need the state back. We need a point where the best players in the state aren't even thinking about Purdue or Notre Dame or Butler. Um, and Indiana State, you need you need them to get yeah. away from the sycamores so, at this point. What what was just, the thing of hiring Woodson? What was the uh, they couldn't get anybody they wanted, and they needed to hire okay. somebody. Um, they put all their eggs in the Brad Stevens, Chris Holtzman basket, and when both of them told them to go fly a kite, they felt pressed and um the plan i believe at the time was that mike woodson was going to be a bridge hire to dane fife and then fife would take the program that fell apart like immediately um and and dane has been and i i admit i'm biased because i'm buddies with him and i've been buddies with his family and i've known his dad since i was a kid so i get it i'm biased but dane's been pretty much blackballed from from college basketball uh, with him being the head coach at IU is that that, that might as well have been a thousand years ago. Those those thoughts, because right now he can't even get an assistant job at a at a mid major, um, because of what, in my opinion, again, my opinion, what the uh, current IU basketball regime has uh, put out into the ether uh, related to Dane and. Um, is Again, it just that's... a winning game for him, for Dane? Like, we saw Patino. I mean. No, I don't. No, no, no. But, dude, we're talking. You think about what, where, what our political climate is right now. Rick Patino got caught with mistresses and, and giving his kids prostitutes. Rick Patino has never right. been accused of being a racist, <laughs> um, has never been accused of. Um, so there's just. There's a lot of things at play that, and I'm not saying that that Dane might have not uh, had some role in antagonizing uh, Woodson and some of Woodson's loyalists, and probably said some um, maybe tone deaf things. Uh, I know that Dane is not a racist; it's the furthest thing from a racist. Uh, his family are the furthest things from racists. Uh, they are they are salt of the earth people. 
Dane is just he's a little goofy. Um, and uh, but I, I just I laugh at the notion that uh, this guy who had so much success both as a player and as a coach uh, with black people his entire life um, somehow at 43 years old, he's, he's deemed a, uh, a racist by certain people. And it, it's really, you know, it's hurt. It's hurt his career severely. I don't know. It's, I don't know if he'll make it back. I don't know. I know it, it really a- is amazing when you get labeled as something, especially in sports, especially on that kind of level, like you were saying, Patino, you know, when they win and they win all the time, they'll excuse anything. They'll look the other way on anything. You know, when it's like, if you don't have the greatest track record, or like you said, they label you something, you're done. You're not, there's no way you're coming back in today's day and age. No, I'll say also with Dane, now again, I would say this to his his face. I don't think it's the best look of him doing appearances on on uh, Dan Dockett's show. Yeah. Uh, without kick. Um, that doesn't do anything to erase the belief that he has, you know, far right agenda or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Dan Dockett is a, personally, I think he's a horrible human being. I know he's an IU legend. Uh, he was an assistant coach when I was there. Some of the stuff that he's done at a, at a personal level, I, I take a lot of issues with um, on the radio in Indianapolis. Uh, some real slimy personal vendetta shit. I'll do. Uh, I'll do uh, respect. Um, well, he was having an all-out Twitter war last year with Ron Harper <laughs> Jr., the kid that played for Rutgers, and then about like Ron Harper's father. It was like this he guy's just, out of control. He, yeah, he like, is. Yeah. Just, so Dane budding up with him. I understand that they have that IU tie and they work together, and but I don't think it's a great look for Dane to be doing uh, appearances on his show. On a network again, I I I consume Outkick, uh, but I I think I know I can discern what part of it is just radical right wing propaganda, and oh, yeah. uh, and what part of it is something to pay attention to. Uh, but uh, I also, if I was Dane, I wouldn't go anywhere close to anything related to Outkick or Dan Dan Dockett. And you know, he just made an appearance like yesterday. Well, Outkick is the same way as. Fox News or CNN yeah. or any of these other ones, they're going to play to their audience. Even Clay I Travis. With, I, I there's with no Fox. way Clay Travis was that extreme right wing, but he plays to his audience. He knows yeah. what everybody wants, in my opinion. I work for Fox, so mm-hmm. I, I, you know. I, I'd i be I'd be a hypocrite if, if I didn't acknowledge that. Like Fox it's, Nation, like Fox News Channel in New York, the Sean mm-hmm. Hannity Fox. I they they <laughs> pay me money, they employ me for part of the year. So there and you nothing, go, you know, nothing to begrudge him with. Uh, but but specifically, Mike Woodson, and this is a long uh, uh, preamble. It's got to be biggest, his last year. My biggest issue, and 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 this echoes with my biggest issue with my pro sports team, the Detroit Pistons. I don't know. How in 2024, with the way basketball is, you can be rolling out rosters with no great three-point shooters. It drives me insane. I do not understand how you think you can win in this day and <laughs> or age. Let's in go with an all-big starting five. Let's at see how any that level, works out. At any level, <laughs> and not have not just one good shooter, like five of them. And it seems so like what, Mike what Woodson. 
Stu, what is that Twitter account? The Pistons fan? The guy who stops the games? Oh, you know, have you seen that, Scott, where he just, there's that guy, he just goes ballistic talking about <laughs> Monty Williams' defense and just, I mean, hey, it's my, I mean, it's nobody. It's nobody's fault in the Pistons. There's two people whose fault it is. One is our uh, general manager, Mr. Troy Weaver, and one is the owner, Mr. Tom Gores. Nobody on this roster or on this coaching staff, in my opinion, takes any responsibility for this. It's in my it's, opinion. It is wretched. It Anybody is wretched. that's looking at Monty Williams and saying that the problem with the Pistons is Monty Williams needs to have their head re-examined. No, but I, I it looks like Monty's died inside. Monty no, died I, inside. I, I, a you're month right. and he didn't want to come here in the didn't want to come here in the first place. They overpaid for him. Um, by the way, his kid's a great his kid's a great college basketball prospect. Uh a sophomore, Elijah Williams, six six. Yep. Can we get Blue can chipper. we get him a uh, visit to East Lansing? Yeah, well, I know okay. the Michigan State's recruiting him. Beautiful. Love Michigan it. just Michigan just offered him. I'm sure Michigan State will offer him soon. Oh, well, he, maybe the exciting prospect playing for Phil Martelli. Uh, yeah. I mean, so uh, I hope I hope Woodson is out of there next year, and I don't know what I don't it know has what to be this doing. year. Scott, I mean, uh, you watched the Penn State game Saturday. That it's was horrible. horrific. It's embarrassing. I, I don't I even can't... know. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. Uh, I love the idea of Brad Stevens, but he ain't coming. Why would you come back to college if you're running the Celtics and 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 the Celtics uh, do what they do? And um, ah, pardon maybe me. You, and maybe you go down the road to Indiana State. I've always looked at and I, this. this <laughs> no, this I mean they're that, they built up a nice program there. Yeah. Um. I don't think it necessarily needs to be an IU guy. You know, that's always been a thing. Um, they went away from it with Calvin Sampson and it got, they got bit. They went away from it with Korean and, you know, mixed results. And look what, look what Calvin's done to Houston though. Yeah, no, I know. No, he's, we can segue into Michigan from this. Calvin yeah. Sampson there's no question that he knows what he's doing when it comes to coaching basketball. He's a great coach. He's just shady as all hell. Wow. That, that, I see I see how you led into it. Uh, we can... we, and now, this war criminal has finally left uh, that that school. The Powder um, Blues have taken over. He's oh, He yeah. hired Greg Roman today. He's getting the band back together. Thank God we got Fangio, because he would have had Fangio back in San Diego, too, with him, like he did in San Francisco. Uh, Scott, what are your thoughts on Jim Harbaugh going back to the NFL? And, you know, he left Michigan in a phenomenal spot. He finally won. But with these sanctions that might come down, I don't know. It almost feels like he left town before the fire. I think, and, uh, and too, Scott, I think he might honestly skate. Like, Michigan might actually skate on these sanctions based on what's going on with Tennessee and, and this uh, SEC Big Ten once again, the Big Ten coming to the SEC's, uh, you know, safety, uh, you know, big brother looking out for little sister. This, but your thoughts? I think that this entire nine years could be one of the most compelling, unique, like straight out of a Hollywood screenwriter room uh, story and saga. 
it, it, there's, there's been so many twists and turns and uh, so much fodder and fire and vitriol and at the end of the day championships uh it's 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 just it's you could have never predicted this um but i will say this him leaving was inevitable uh if he could have he would have left before any of this um new golden era of michigan football even happened um he wanted to leave during the pandemic, the university wanted him to leave. Basically, they cut his salary yeah. in half. Um, so it's just strange that it, you know he went for six years, uh, pretty underwhelming, top to bottom. Although there were some, there were some good moments in that top six, yeah. but no real signature moments or championships and. Any other coach at any other school uh, would have been gone. He's, I mean, he's just, he's flatlining at two and five in the pandemic. He does, he's afraid to play Ohio State. He, he anoints Joe Milton as the next great Michigan quarterback. That was a disaster. And then from the ashes rises this Phoenix that takes Michigan to heights it had never achieved in modern day times. In my lifetime, I had never seen it before, uh, where they were definitive top one, two, three team in the country, three state year or three straight years, cap it with a national title in dominating fashion. I mean, it, again, it's just yeah, who could have predicted any of this? I guess my biggest, um, I would say, like, what irritates me is, and this is just part and parcel with Michigan fans, and my family are Michigan fans. They went to Michigan. I've been around it my whole life. I just wish there was some self-awareness and ownership. To me, it's like, for someone who roots for Michigan, I I don't necessarily consider myself a Michigan fan, but I root for Michigan. Um, hey, just embrace it. The last three years, you became the you. You became a lawless gangster program. But guess what? Just like the you, you came away with yeah, the ring. Hey, hey listen, <laughs> you need some dogs. You need leaders some in dogs. the best. It doesn't matter. So leaders you know what? The just just embrace it and be like, yeah, we sold our soul to the devil and it got us where we wanted to go and needed to be. Um, yeah. and, and if that, and if, and if I felt like that was the overarching aura or ethos or, but it's like this, how dare you question us? And we're so about beyond reproach and we do it the right way when it's so clear as day, you don't. You're hypocrites. <laughs> so, Scott, as as a leading, uh, field leading crime uh, analyst and investigator, are you saying that the Connor Stallion <laughs> stuff? Uh, is... I like how the, I like how it, it slips underneath the. Uh, I, maybe I wasn't paying close enough attention, but I saw about a week ago. One of the people that Jim Harbaugh is bringing with him to, to the L.A. Chargers is Connor Stallions, head of 
uh, scouting, uh, you know, whatever. I, I, I don't, I didn't recall a ton of articles kind of pointing that out. Scott, the what, the, the blue wall has it, it, it got, there was a, a, a section taken out and then radio sound. They, they built it back. It's built back I up. Mean, uh, how do you? I thought he didn't know that. I thought he barely knew. Uh, he knew nothing. That, he knew nothing. Was he didn't know. He didn't know Connor How does he know the guy's a good scout? How does he know he knows what he's doing? <laughs> hey, hey, he was just financing that on his own. He he's just a big college football fan, just going to all these games, buying all. On, these an, on an aside, and you can hit the siren here. I found out that I actually I I have like a fucking shit ton of inner, like co like mutual acquaintances. With the with the, with Connor Stallions, and I didn't realize I knew his brother a little bit, James Stallions, who was the starting quarterback on, I want to say, back to back state championship teams at Macomb, Dakota, in the two thousands. But he might have been just the quarterback on one of those I teams. Think, I think I may have played against his brother then. Yeah, and he played at te- he went to Tennessee. <laughs> now, he was good enough to get a scholarship hey, to Tennessee. This is, hey. He'd be a guy to get on your podcast. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, I'm I'm actually kind of insulted for Scott that he didn't get offered uh, a trip to go see Penn State, uh, Ohio State, and get those fifty yard tickets. I mean, yeah, that's a little that's a little frustrating. Uh, so I mean, yeah, well, I don't know what what's coming down the pike. Who's going to get slammed? Who's not? Um. But whether or not there were sanctions or no sanctions, I, I did. I, Harbaugh wanted to go to the NFL. I don't know why it was so difficult for people that cover Michigan to just say that. People like Bob uh, at mm-hmm. the at the Detroit News, like, oh well, we know. Just accept. He wa- He's telling you every year he wants to leave. Yeah, like, yeah. Why? You, you why know, are you doubting that? They say that he really two years ago, like the Minnesota job when he, he was gone, he went he was there gone. that day for the interview. He thought he was gone. I mean, he would have never even won a national cha- It's amazing the way he that told, I He told the entire Schembechler Hall the day before he left. He brought them all together. He gave the secretaries all going away presents. He was wow. done. He told everybody, go find jobs. Wow. That's amazing. It's amazing with, the way that worked out, that whole thing. With Sheryl Moore taking over, and it really seems like they're just, you know, they lose um, – they I feel bad for, for DC. Him. Uh well, you know, he's gonna get a free pass. He's gonna get nah, a free hey, pass. Maybe for a year or two, he'll be out of there in three years. Do, uh, how is there? I, I mean, for winning the national championship for the time being without an asterisk, uh they're ranked like 20th in the country right now. I mean, do you follow recruiting? Mm-hmm. Um course, I wrote that's my, my moonlight gig. Yeah, I mean, what what do you see? I it seems like they just kind of like the plan this year. Was their recruiting was just, bad. Yeah, just Harbaugh gonna... didn't care. It didn't care between. Uh, he knew he knew where it was. He knew what was going on. Mm-hmm. He was he wasn't actively engaged in recruiting, and his staff wasn't actively engaged in recruiting at a time where you need to be actively engaged in recruiting for your your upcoming class. What's your thoughts on the NIL, Scott? Before we wrap this up, what do you think about? You know, I, I think it's I think it's fair that these kids do get paid, but I think it's gotten out of line. Where 
you know, I thought Chip Kelly made a great point a couple of weeks ago on ESPN where he said it should be a revenue sharing type thing where everybody gets a piece and that's how we do it and work it out. It's getting to be now. It's just totally out of control where it's just whatever you want to get yeah. paid and guys are getting let. That's what a lot of people don't realize. How many kids are getting left in these portals? They're getting lied to by these schools. They're getting yep. lied to by agents. It's it's really incredible this era of college football. And I can't remember for the longest time, so many outside people are down on college football right now. You're seeing coaches leaving, guys retiring. Uh, it's just well, I, it's, it's a bad I hate thing. To say, I hate to, again, kind of like pat myself on the back, but I remember doing uh, one of our early interviews, too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I remember telling this just anybody that when the subject came up, when the, the when the Supreme Court ruling came down, what was it three years ago or two years ago? Mm-hmm. I was like, this is going to crater the entire business structure of college football, uh, you know, that had been in place for time immemorial. Like there had been a certain way that business was done in college sports for a hundred years that got all you know, thrown out the window and then there had been no due diligence by the NCAA. And this is to me just negligence. They should have been preparing for this day, knowing this day was going to come. But instead you then, uh, like Rob just said, you, you open up the fl- the floodgates and there's been no due diligence done and there are no parameters and it's the wild west and everybody's being creative and in a matter of three three years, it's completely insane, out of control, with certain kids collecting millions of dollars before they even get a snap of a football at a college, and then they're gone to another college to collect more NIL money. Um, you have people taking money uh, with with without really understanding what that money really means, what the booster is really expecting. I heard some of the, some of the, some of the allegations coming out. And I think this is part of why Tennessee's in hot waters. They were actually having kids try to sign contracts. Yeah. For terms of service. What's it, what's the craziest thing you've heard in your circles so far when it comes to NIL? Um, It's just, it's it's taken everything that was being done under the table and has brought it, you know, on a stage and put a bright light on it. And it's just this these these bidding wars where it, it has nothing to do really with the university. Um, it has more to do with what that coach is promising you or what he can get you or what he can't get you or what the school's NIL office can get you or what they can't get you. Um, In terms of crazy stories, I mean, I don't think this is a, I don't think this is being talked about for the first time, but I mean, to me, what encapsulates the, the insanity is the Quinn Ewers. You know, he took 4 million or something uh, from Ohio state boosters and was on campus for a year, took off, came down to Texas, took another four or 5 million from boosters down there. Um, and he, he had pocketed like $9 million before he took his first college starting snap. And he's turned out to be pretty good. 
But, I mean, if I was those Columbus boosters, I'd want my money back. Oh, yeah. But there's no there's no remedy for that. No, and, and now they're getting agents, which is even more incredible. Yeah. That You hear the college coaches say, I can't even go and talk to the family. Yeah. First, I got to deal with the agent. Yeah. And it's like, right. well, this isn't even going to get you in the door to talk to the family. So I have no know? idea where this is going or they're going to have to rein this thing in and put in uh, some, some strict guidelines and protocols. Salary cap. In terms of Michigan, though, it's even more impressive that they've been able to do yeah. what they've done over the last three years without any, you know, uh, muscle in their NIL department. Yeah. Um, they are they have basically told kids uh, that you're more than welcome to go get yourself as much NIL revenue as possible, but you're going to get limited help from us. And I know that there was a certain kind of narrative that was being put out by Michigan that people were kind of taking offense with, with JJ, they would point to JJ and say, well, look what JJ did for his NIL. And JJ's dad is a, you know, a guy that knows business um, is a connected businessman and went and, and wheeled and deal for his son and made his son some, some really smart business deals. Uh, not every recruit, has those kind of resources. No, not at all. Um, or parents that have the, the the wherewithal, the desire, the knowledge uh, to do any of that. Or the ability and you to get set agents up in a... There, uh... How many of these agents, too, are swindling these kids out of money yeah. and yeah. just taking the parents for a ride? and Forget about it. Scott, how many of these kids know how to set up a LLC in yeah, Wyoming? Right. No, right. Without so... the help of... You know, people on staff. Um, but I think allegedly. if you're Michigan, though, on the other, you know, the other as the, you know, taking the pendulum to the other side, it's something you you, you got to get hip to or you're going to be left behind. These were these were aberrations, man. I mean, what's happened the last couple of years at Michigan is it's such a unicorn. I mean, even the way they play their style. I mean, it's it wasn't a 2020 brand of of football, but they were going in and they were imposing their will on teams and, and being disruptive to modern day football. But I, I don't know if that could ever be replicated. Um, and as, and as a result, you're going to need down the field threats. Uh, you know, even the backs that they've used. Um, I mean, again, I Blake Corm could be the greatest back Michigan ever had, uh, but I don't know as a pro is he, if he's an every down back. I think he's a guy with a pro career, definitely. Mm -hmm. um, I don't not, know. Not a guy. I don't know if he's an every down back. And Donovan Edwards, same thing. Hassan Haskins has been okay in the NFL, but um, nothing. You know, it's not, he's not Saquon Barkley. So you're gonna go. You're gonna need and JJ McCarthy. Frankly, I'm not convinced that he's a great NFL I, prospect. I, I don't. I don't. I don't see it, but then again, it it, it brings up uh, a they question. They hit him. They hit him. Is there is there a reason? And I think it's JJ specifically. Why Dante Moore had a second opportunity? You know that that tattoo on his dad's arm is not yeah. it hasn't been removed yet. But he, he's out with Dan Lanning in Oregon, it, with, knowing he's sitting another year. 
Another year, yeah. Well, because he knew Alex Orgy's going to take JJ's spot. He's already been kind of ordained. That's. I thought they. I thought they were going to try and get um, the kid out of Alabama, or at oh, least yeah, they... Talia Talia. Uh, yeah. Before he, you know, found so, out. Yeah, I know. Him. We'll see, but I know that the Michigan people need to get on their game with not just selling the brand and the block M and the prestige. You have to be able to go into these kids' living rooms and explain to them how we have this. They should be proud of it. They've got one of the greatest alumni bases ever. They've got billions of dollars in booster money and, and, uh, and alumni around the world that want to give money to Michigan and help Michigan. Like they should use that as a selling point for these kids to get them NILs. Yeah, it is amazing how they push that aside. It's like they're too prestigious to do that. It's... Just go get Steve Ross. Just go get Steve Ross, who yeah. loves Michigan, one of the richest guys in the fucking world, owns the <laughs> Miami Dolphins. Yeah. Like, just get him to start giving money on a regular. Like, hey, That's set it. up the, the Steve Ross uh, NIL, you know, division. <laughs> well, Michigan well, Athletic Department. Building. He certainly needs another building in Ann Arbor. Um, yeah. Real quick, before last question before we wrap up. Uh, thoughts on Michigan holding spring practice in Tehran this season? Scott, your thoughts? <laughs> uh, like I said, it should be interesting to see where uh, how this program responds, reacts, deals with what is or isn't going to uh, you know, come down in terms of sanctions. I don't envy Samar. I don't I don't envy Coach Moore. Um the expectations now are higher than they've ever been. And he's gonna be expected to be winning Big Ten championships and going to the playoff. Within a couple I, years. I don't know how equipped they are to do that right now. I agree he'll have a year or two honeymoon, but if he ain't back there in, in year three or four. I don't see him. The, the 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 rope they gave Jim Harbaugh will not be the same rope they give Mr. Moore. Mr. Rope, Mr. Moore will get two years as opposed to Jim's five. And I mean, that, two years. I'm saying two years after the honeymoon. Yeah. But on that note, Scott, we've taken you up for way too long. Thank you for staying with us, folks. Uh, great show. Wait, great way to celebrate episode number three hundred. Uh, go check out Scott OG podcast available on YouTube, available wherever you get you podcasts, gangsterreport.com. Uh, Scott's doing the Lord's work there. I mean, how many different movies, shows, documentaries, uh, Netflix, extraordinaire. Uh, Scott, anything coming up on the pipeline you wanted to uh, plug before we head out? Uh, BMF season three uh, is going to premiere on March the 1st. Uh, and then season two of the docuseries, um, we're hoping for a green light soon. And we hope to go into production in the spring for season two of the docuseries. So, um, you know, I'm excited about that. My couple documentaries that I did in 2023 are available at Fox Nation, uh, which is the Fox News Channel streaming service. Uh, one is about uh, the, the true 
true story behind Goodfellas, and the other one is the true story behind Casino. Uh, one's called Skim City, and the other one is, I think, the Lufanza heist. Um, and then uh, I, I, I wish I could share more details with this other thing, uh, but I got uh, some uh, kind of like mob biker stuff, kind of, kind of the story of how mo the mob and the bikers have coexisted, have been enemies, allies, rivals uh, over the last 40 years. 50 years and and uh hopefully i'm going to be able to show everybody kind of a cool high production uh multi-part docuseries that that's about that on a on a kind of a premium either streamer or network i'll have more details in the next uh couple months yeah i bet uh, i will be watching that sounds phenomenal um yeah scott thank you again roberto i will see you later this week as we preview the super bowl who cares sports are dead uh, I'm that's not the, caring that's about that's the, the NFL sucks anyway. It sucks. Yep. Yep. Um, so we'll it's talk all, about it's that. all a conspiracy just to get uh, the, the Swifties to endorse. That's Biden. right. Yeah. It's screw over the Lions is what happened. Right. Um, well, the Lions talk for themselves. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, that's true too. And on that bombshell for Roberto, for Scott, until next time, we'll see you after a while.